0: Hello and welcome to another Ain't It Scary mini-sode. It's a supplemental walk on the wild side from your favorite spooky couple. Caroline, this week you've got a an interesting story for all the sports fans out there.
1: Yes. So first of all, hello to our patrons. Did want to apologize for the slight delay in getting a new mini sewed up because things have been a little busy since this whole vaccine thing has really kicked into gear.
0: Yeah, we're really excited about being able to go places, but now we also must go places.
1: Yeah, it's a (laughs) a catch-22. But um, we're here today, and thanks to the votes in our latest poll, I'll be discussing a bit of historical strangeness, the curse of the Bambino. Mm. So since it's been a bit, I'm going to make this one a little longer than your typical minisode, so I hope you all enjoy. So if you're not a baseball fan, you may not be super familiar with the Curse of the Bambino, but as far as curses go, I'd say it's pretty famous. The quick summary is that it's a baseball-related superstition due to the Boston Red Sox's inability to win the World Series in the 86-year straight period from 1918 to 2004.
0: Uh, baseball, it, Major League Baseball, has no shortage of clubs who have never made it to uh, to win a World Series. Uh, but there's also no shortage of superstition, curses, uh, and and old traditions.
1: And to be fair, the Red Sox have been around one of they're one of the longest uh, running teams. So some of those teams that have never won have only been around for a few decades. Very true. So where does the Bambino come in? Um, well, the curse supposedly began after the Red Sox sold their star player Babe Ruth, known as the Great Bambino, for $125,000 to the New York Yankees after the
0: 1919 season. You've seen the check, haven't you, Carrie?
1: I have. I've held it in my hands. It was in a little sleeve. But um, yeah, it was pretty surreal to see it.
0: Yeah. And for people who don't know... Um... You know, labor relations were a lot different for baseball players back then. So you it, it, you wouldn't trade a player's contract or, or whatever. They they the clubs would sell the player,
1: sell the rights to them basically, yeah. To
0: another club, and then eh, that's who you're working for.
1: Yeah. So up to that point, the Sox had been doing pretty damn well. Uh, they had won five of the first fifteen World Series championships, but after the Babe bid adieu, they. Wouldn't claim that victory again for the better part of a century.
0: Yeah, and it has, from the modern eye looking back, it has you know, it smacks of being punished for greed or hubris or something. Like mm-hmm. we don't need him, and then and then there he goes to the team that would be their greatest rival over, a, you know, nearly a hundred year dry spell.
1: Absolutely. So I'm gonna start with a little backstory on myself because I feel like baseball in the american conscience consciousness is such a historical and like family-based thing that i think it kind of makes sense to start there um, i personally grew up in a diehard baseball family that was like our family's sport some families are really into football ours was baseball my great grandparents came over from italy and settled in the bronx and since then being yankees fans especially is basically in our blood. So my dad, Paul Ferrante, is an expert in the baseball stadium and collecting community, and you can read his work in Sports Collectors Digest among other publications. But that means we've been visiting the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York each year since before I was born. Mm-hmm. Um probably when I was a fetus to be honest.
0: You might have been conceived there.
1: <laughs> I haven't asked. Uh, So, yeah, so, you know, they've my parents have donated stuff to the hall. Um, My family was given a VIP tour of like the subterranean archives vault a few years back. And that's where I uh, held that check that, you know, was the signing away of Babe Ruth. And so as you can imagine, being around this since my birth, um, I kind of grew up entranced by the magic of baseball. More than any other sport, I find there's like a kind of romance in it, and much of that is due to the sports and Major League Baseball's very long history. Uh-huh. Uh, the game of baseball as it's known today started out in the 19th century and is a uniquely American game with the National League being founded as far back as 1876, so really not far after the Civil War. That's how long this game has been around.
0: Yeah, invented by Abner Doubleday.
1: Quote, unquote. (laughs) In
0: Cooperstown, New York, of Mm -hmm. course.
1: So I was born in New York, and I grew up in the 1990s era of the Yankees' dominance, and the sport's really deep in my own history as well. So all this to say is that I grew up with the knowledge of the Curse of the Bambino uh, being told to me as a nice uh, bedtime story, if you will. And also knowing about the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry.
0: Uh, And my father has a Red Sox logo on his tombstone, so I also (laughs) grew up hearing plenty about the curse of the Bambino. Mm -hmm. But more in like whispered, hateful (laughs) terms.
1: Yeah, I mean, this rivalry is deep, and it's very intense, especially before the early 2000s. Um, It's led up somewhat since the Sox finally won the series again in 2004. Spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't been following baseball for the last 20 years. Um, And they have won twice since, but I still don't know how smart it would be to wear a Yankees cap to Fenway Park even today.
0: Uh, No. (laughs) Um. No, it's similar to wearing a... It's similar to wearing a Red Sox hat in Yankee Stadium. Well, sure, yeah. Except I I think Boston fans are even more likely to actually...
1: Beat you up? Yeah.
0: Well, (laughs) tell you how much your hat fucking sucks. Sure.
1: Um, Yeah, I, I like to say to anyone who asks that my only concession in finding a wonderful husband, Sean was that I married a Red Sox fan. Uh, Because earlier in my family's history, that would have been probably considered a traitorous act. So thankfully, they all, especially my grandma, who is a huge Yankees fan, has been all her life, uh, they all approve, so it's really become a marriage of state between our uh, our families.
0: It was touch and go for a while there, though.
1: <laughs> I will say, when I told Grandma, you know, he's he's a Red Sox fan, she goes, "Oh, what?" It was it was a lot for her to take in.
0: I barely watch baseball. It's like saying I'm a Catholic.
1: Still, you I mean you got family from the Boston area? It's. Basically, in,
0: my, in my blood.
1: Yeah, it's as, just as much in your blood as it is in mine. you got the Boston Irish and the New York Italians, and we've united forces. Um, but yeah, why is there such a rivalry? You know, We have to go back to where the curse of the Bambino began, and that's way back around 1918. So at this time, George Herman Ruth, a.k.a. Babe, was a star lefty pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. And if you're not into baseball or whatever, I totally get it, but I assume you know who the babe was. Uh, you've probably seen him in old newsreels or the film The Sandlot. Uh, he makes his little cameo <laughs> appearance. But simply put, the babe is one of the greatest sportsmen of all time. It's like him, you know, Michael Jordan, like Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali. These are the giants of sport. And he's among the candidates for the title of greatest ever in baseball, because in addition to his pitching prowess, the babe could hit. He hit that ball. Um, He was the winning pitcher in two of the six games of the 1918 World Series. But in 1919, he broke the MLB single season home run record with the Sox, which made his sale to the Yankees all the more inexplicable. Money, 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 money. So let's, let's go into the standard lore of the curse. It goes like this. Red Sox owner and theatrical producer, Harry Frazee, sold Babe to the Yankees to use the proceeds to finance the production of a Broadway musical.
0: What, what musical? Was it a big hit?
1: It's usually said to be No No Nanette.
0: Well, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> you know I listen to that original cast recording all the time. Big
1: Nanette head. Perpetually. (laughs) So that's the lore, but this isn't quite true. Um, So Lee Montville, who's a fabulous baseball writer and happens to be a friend of my dad's, so shout out to Lee, he wrote in his book, The Big Bam, The Life and Times of Babe Ruth, that the production No No Nanette had originated as a non musical stage play called My Lady Friends.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, (laughs) Yen.
1: Uh, so it originated as a play, My Lady Friends, which opened on Broadway in December 1919. That play was what had been financed as a direct result of the Ruth deal, not No No Nanette.
0: Okay, but then that was adapted into a musical called No No Nanette? Yes,
1: but it wasn't, like, directly funded by this sale. The play was.
0: Okay, so it was something with less of a budget that, that was less of a success?
1: <laughs> uh, possibly, but, I mean, you know, if they ever ask... You guys and in our audience, what Broadway musical was financed by the sale of Babe Ruth to the Yankees at Pub Trivia? I think we have gotten this question, Sean, at Bar Trivia before. You can try and get some bonus points by telling them the real story. It was My Lady Friends that it funded.
0: Although that's not a musical. It's a play. And you tell that trivia master. You put him in his place.
1: (laughs) It's a play. There are no songs. So why in the world would you sell the biggest star in baseball for a Broadway play? The reasons are a little gray. Ruth at the time was trying to renegotiate his deal. Uh, He was attempting to double his three-year $27,000 salary despite the Sox not making it to the World Series in 1919. But why shouldn't he? I mean, he had just broken the home run record and he was the biggest celebrity the sport had, not even just the team, like all of baseball.
0: He was also what passed for like a good pitcher, too, right?
1: Yes, he was a great pitcher, great hitter. So he was feeling confident. He wanted to renegotiate. But Harry Frazee was in debt from buying the Sox in 1916 and he still wanted to fund my lady friends. So selling the Babe was the easiest way for him to make a big sum of cash all at once.
0: Yeah, so totally, just totally personal reasons.
1: Pretty much. Um, so he decided to sell the rights to Ruth to the New York Yankees, who at that point had never even appeared in a World Series. So Off the Bay went to New York and Frazee pocketed the $125,000. And thank God for that, because now we have the beloved American play and musical. No, 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 net.
0: What were the, um, how long have the Yankees been around at this point, if you know? And uh, they were called something else first, right? Were they the New York Americans or something?
1: The Yankees began play in the 1901 season as the Baltimore Orioles. Oh! No relation to the modern Baltimore Orioles. That was a twist. And then they were purchased um, in 1903, moved to New York City, and called the New York Highlanders. And then the Highlanders were renamed the New York Yankees in 1913. So they were around, I think around the same amount of time as the Red Sox, but they just hadn't been in a World Series. I mean, all of this change and moving back and forth, I'm sure that didn't help.
0: What does the Oriole have to do with Baltimore? What? Um, I
1: assume it's a state bird, but...
0: That city just keeps going back to that well.
1: Love a bird. And the Ravens, too.
0: Well, that's because of Edgar Allan Poe.
1: Right, but I mean, you know, both of them are birds. So, Frazee got the money, Babes going to New York. That's when the fortunes of both teams drastically changed. It's hard to argue now, even if you absolutely despise the team, which many Red Sox fans still do, that the Yankees didn't emerge over the 20th century as the quintessential American baseball team.
0: They were winners, baby. Oh yeah, that's why they were easy to, to hate. hate yeah. yeah, they were the evil empire.
1: Yeah, it's like hating George Clooney because he's uh, so charming and handsome and an, a good actor. It's like enough, we get it. But their winning streak really started when they acquired Bay Ruth. Babe single-handedly out-homered the entire Boston team in 10 of the next 12 seasons.
0: Revenge (laughs) seasons. Not revenge games. Revenge Mm -hmm. seasons.
1: With his first home run as a Yankee coming during a 6-0 victory against none other than the Red Sox. The Yanks went on to win four World Series championships with Ruth Ruth on their roster, including him repeatedly breaking his single-season home run record through to 1927 a record that wouldn't be broken, and even then, with an asterisk, until Roger Maris managed to in 1961. So in the 18, in the 84 years after the sale, the Yankees played in 39 World Series, winning 26 of them by 2004, and that was twice as many as any other team in Major League Baseball. Meanwhile, over the same time span, the Red Sox played in only four World Series, World Series and lost all of them within seven games, never managing to capture the championship until the new millennium.
0: Yeah. I think I can point you to to some guesses at reasons for that besides curses, but I want to hear about the curse first.
1: Well, that's a great thing because we're about to go into it. Why is there talk of a curse? Even to the least superstitious fan, the huge length of time between World Series wins was staggering for the Red Sox
0: especially for a team who by the end of that dry spell period had a you know a cap a salary cap higher than the Yankees did mm-hmm. uh, for you know by by a chunk
1: and again they had won a third of the World Series that had happened already sometimes the losses would feature momentous collapses like in 1978 when the the Sox squandered a huge lead in the standings to see their hated rivals catch them in september and that included a horrendous beatdown series at fenway that is referred to as the boston massacre Uh this culminated a in a fabulous one game playoff at fenway in which a wind-blown homer over the fabled green monster by light-hitting Yankee shortstop Bucky Dent led the way to a Yankees victory. And after that, Mr. Dent was forever henceforth to be known as Bucky fucking Dent to Sox fans. Yes. At other times, those championships would be lost because of simple mistakes.
0: Buckner? Yeah.
1: In 1986, Game 6 of the World Series Boston first baseman Bill Buckner, who would become a pariah in Boston until the curse was finally broken, allowed a ground ball hit by the Mets' Mookie Wilson to roll through his legs, scoring Ray Knight from second base.
0: Did you uh, see the episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm Buckner was in?
1: I didn't see that one, no.
0: He's, obvi- he's obviously still just hounded by that play oh, wherever he goes. Yes. But then at the end of the episode, there's a house on fire and a lady's like in the window going, my baby, my baby. And the yeah. only man who can catch the baby is Bill Buckner standing there at does the bottom. Does he catch of the it? Well, she's very hesitant to throw the baby, oh. but then he does catch it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs>
0: a little redemption. Like a diving catch of the baby for Bill Buckner. Yeah. He
1: was hated in Red Sox uh fandom after that and in Boston and, you know, shit happens. But it happened at a really bad
0: time for him. (laughs) (laughs) It happened at a really bad time for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. So this error helped the Mets win win the series in game seven and prompted New York Times columnist George Vexy to write articles describing the Red Sox as cursed. That's where many think the widespread knowledge or belief in the curse started.
0: Oh, wow. It didn't People didn't start talking about this until 86. I
1: think there was stuff here and there about it, but the curse of the Bambino and it being a cursed team really came into prominence around that time. Then, in both 1988 and 1990, the Red Sox advanced to the American League Championship Series only to suffer four game sweeps, both times at the hands of the Oakland Athletics. This coincided with the release of the book The Curse of the Bambino by Dan Shaughnessy, which really launched the concept of the curse and the phrase Curse of the Bambino into popular imagination and even ended up becoming required reading in some high school English classes in New England. Belief in the curse became so widespread that there were concerted efforts to break it by many parties, including the Sox organization themselves.
0: Oh, did they have an exorcism?
1: I'm getting there. (laughs) Red Sox fans attempted various methods over the years to exercise their famous curse, like placing a Red Sox cap atop Mount Everest and burning a Yankees cap at its base camp.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a ritual.
1: hmm. Some tried to unearth a piano owned by Ruth that he had supposedly pushed into a pond near his Sudbury, Massachusetts farm home plate farm believing that if the piano was covered and restored to its original condition, the curse would be broken.
0: But only when you play Sweet Caroline on it, (laughs) three times.
1: Yes. Others even organized an exorcism outside of Fenway Park. Perhaps my favorite story is in 1976, when the Red Sox brought in Lori Cabot, the official witch of Salem, Massachusetts, to end a 10-game losing streak.
0: Um, I've been to Salem, Massachusetts. There's a lot of witches and none of them seem official. She is
1: the official witch, and she was declared this around the same time by the governor of Massachusetts. Okay. So the losing streak ended after Lori intervened, but the curse of the Bambino did not. Though Red Sox manager Daryl Johnson did say, quote, Whatever did it for us, I'm happy about it. <laughs> I will say in Cabot's defense, I did have a reading done by her protege, Lorelei at Cabot's former witch shop that said I'd meet my future husband within six months. And three months later, Sean here slid headfirst into my life.
0: So. I'm glad that sentence ended in life. <laughs> yeah.
1: So in Ken Burns' 1994 documentary, Baseball, former Red Sox pitcher Bill Lee suggested that the Red Sox should exhume the body of Babe Ruth, transport it back to Fenway, and okay, publicly okay. Good ad- so far. <laughs> publicly apologize to the corpse for trading Ruth to the Yankees. Yeah, that seems...
0: Totally what, normal. Who wouldn't want their corpse to be du- exhumed and dragged out to be apologized <laughs> to in front of the public? Yeah.
1: It was a tall order and, of course, never ended up happening.
0: What a joyous day for the family. <laughs>
1: Two occurrences in 2004 might have been the things to bring the curse to an end for good. The first was during a game on August 31st, 2004, when a foul ball hit by Sox player Manny Ramirez flew into the stands and hit a kid in the face, knocking two of his teeth out.
0: Well, it's just Manny being Manny, you know.
1: (laughs) The kid happened to be 16-year-old Lee Gavin, a Boston fan whose favorite player was Ramirez, and who happened to live on the aforementioned Sudbury home plate farm previously owned by Babe Ruth. (gasps) That same day, the Yankees suffered their worst loss in team history, a 22-0 murder at home against the Cleveland Indians.
0: Wait, so whacking this kid in the face with the baseballs, what, did it?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure why hitting this poor Sox fan in the face would have broken the curse, even if he did live in Babe's old house. But that is the first theory. Okay. And it does coincide with the Yankees' worst loss ever.
0: Yeah, but what else happened on that day? <laughs> maybe maybe there was some other trigger. <laughs> and there was a tsunami
1: and the second theory is that the Sox have Jimmy Buffett to thank for the end of the curse.
0: I'm listening. <laughs>
1: Buffett and his warm-up band, with one of them dressed as Ruth and one of them dressed as a witch doctor, performed a comedic curse-breaking ceremony at a Fenway concert in September 2004. Coincidentally, the Sox would end up winning their first World Series since the trade of Babe Ruth soon after.
0: Mmm, that's all you needed was a little cultural appropriation.
1: (laughs) So that brings us to the 2004 World Series. Perhaps the curse was only able to be broken by the Red Sox going up ago- Perhaps the curse was only able to be broken by the Red Sox going up against the Yankees for the American League Championship Series because remember they didn't beat the Yankees in the World Series itself just for the American League
0: title. Well, they're both American League
1: teams. Yeah, but everyone remembers the Yankees' loss. The Red Sox lost the first 3 games including losing game 3 at Fenway by the wild score of 19 to 8
0: hmm I, I remember this very well.
1: hmm And some later noted the similarity of this score to 1918, the year of the Sox's previous championship. It looked like business as usual for the Bronx Bombers. It would be
0: 1908, technically. So, you know, well, yeah, it was similar. If it was a much closer game, it could have been 1918.
1: <laughs> so the Red Sox trailed 4-3 to three in the bottom of the ninth inning in Game 4. But the team tied the game, then won on a two-run home run in the 12th inning by David Big Poppy Ortiz. Mm-hmm. The Red Sox won the next three games to become the first MLB team to capture a seven-game postseason series after losing the first three, moving to the 100th edition of the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals and winning in a four-game sweep. Ironically, or perhaps because of the curse, Cardinal's shortstop Edgar Renteria, who wore the same number as Ruth, three, made the final out of the series and thus sealed the Sox's historic win. So maybe it was, you know, like a sign of we're finally winning over him.
0: That's a nice history history rhyming kind of thing there. Mm -hmm. I wonder if they finagled the assignments to make sure (laughs) that happened.
1: Well, no, he played for the Cardinals, so.
0: Oh, yeah, I guess why would the Cardinals do
1: that? Yeah, they didn't didn't want them to win, especially against them. The final game had also taken place on October 27th during a total lunar eclipse, the only postseason or World Series game to do so, and also took place exactly 18, remember 1918, Mm -hmm. 18 years to the day that the Red Sox last lost a World Series game. It's so a lot of interesting coincidences.
0: Carl Jung would have a lot to say, about all these numbers. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: The Curse of the Bambino has wound its way into pop culture in books like Faithful, Boston Red Sox fans chronicle the historic 2004 season by Stuart Ornan and Stephen King, songs like The Dropkick, Murphy's Tessie, mm-hmm. films like Fever Pitch, which features the ending taking place uh, during the winning game, And um, that wasn't originally the ending. They had to kind of like race to reshoot that stuff. I didn't know that. Yeah. And even video games like the Massachusetts set Fallout 4, where one of the events in the timeline divergence in the game's mythology is that the curse was never broken and the Boston Red Sox never won the World Series even up to the year 2077 where in the game newspaper articles show that the Red Sox were up 3-0 against Texas in 2077 with game 4 scheduled for the day the nuclear bombs fell so kind of a hell freezes over sort of thing the world will
0: end before the Red Sox <laughs> win a world the world will end before the Red Sox win a world series That's basically
1: yeah though it was painful for myself to see the Sox beat the Yankees on the way to winning their curse-breaking World Series the championship brought a lot of joy to the city of Boston and Red Sox fans which makes it worth it 81-year-old lifelong Sox fan Alfred Panassi told his son bleacher report commentator Peter Panassi immediately after the win quote i can't believe they did it after all these years i can't believe they did it panassi later wrote of his father the quiet joy and excitement in his voice is something this author shall never forget. And for those fans who stayed the course against what seemed to be impossible, I can't help but feel glad that they lived to see those dreams come true.
0: That's why I was happy, uh, so happy when the Cubs did it a couple years ago. I think everybody, I think the whole country was.
1: Yeah, it's nice for them. like Good for them. That's a nice thing to happen. The curse of the Bambino is not the only baseball curse out there and not even the only one to have been broken recently, as Sean may have just hinted at. This is the curse of the billy goat. Uh, yes. <laughs> but that one is another hex for another day.
0: <laughs> um, I think. The Red Sox obviously shot themselves in the foot and mismanaged talented rosters at times. But also, I think they were behind the rest of the sport at a lot of different periods. Mm-hmm. I think they were behind breaking the... Color. I think they were the last team to you know, allow black players the, you know...
1: Ability to play for them? The yeah, not great, Red honor Sox. of
0: sitting on their stupid uh, benches? Not great, Red Sox, yeah. Um, and then I think they were one of the later teams to really get headfirst into all the new analytics uh, uh, stuff. I could be wrong on that, and again, I'm not a... Mm-hmm. Like historian good, i'm not a good baseball historian <laughs> but um it, yeah it, they
1: certainly didn't help themselves at, at certain points for they sure. have
0: they have at times been an organization that looks back at tradition instead of forward to the future mm-hmm. and i don't think that's a way that, to win championships
1: no and i think they finally kind of fixed that
0: oh, unless uh, right the,
1: around the time when they started winning again
0: unless the owner just saw the future in broadway true that but maybe they should have been producing plays the whole time
1: Yeah, it would be ironic if they had funded damn Yankees. (laughs) So yeah, that's the story of the curse of the Bambino.
0: I love it. And thank you for sharing it with us, Carrie. Um, And now I guess there's nothing else to say except play ball. Listen to Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time podcast. It's a fun show about weird stuff. New episodes every Wednesday, Yeah, eggheads. I'm Art. And I'm Andy. And Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, unsolved mysteries we're going to be discussing the kennedy assassinations oh yeah that's his nickname finger banging bob lazar give me some aliens with some good freaking spacecraft the whole enchilada the only thing bigger than bigfoot's feet are our egos if you like simulation theory ancient history egghead science and mandela effect that kind of stuff so check it out new episodes every wednesday all the links you need on mr and we'll see you in the bunker